good morning. Uh, welcome to this uh, Sunday School Power. We continue with our studies on uh, eschatology. And today we come to um, Revelation 20. So I'd like us to read that whole uh, chapter. We've already read verse 11 through 15 in our previous studies. Uh, but what we're going to do this morning is to uh, try to understand that passage because it's a main text debated over the whole question of uh, uh, millennium. So all the four millennial views draw their conclusions from this text. And, and so this morning we were going to, to seek to understand it. And you know my method is to ask questions. Uh, so that's what we will do. But before we take off, let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much uh, this morning that uh, we are recipients of your grace. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So Lord, as we think about um, the uh, eternity to come, our prayer is that uh, you may fill our hearts with hope and uh, strengthen our faith to trust you more and enable us, O oh Lord, to love you more, uh, live for your glory, serve you better uh, in light of uh, eternity. So do hear us, bless us, O oh Lord, for we do pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So if you will, please turn to Revelation 20. Uh, Revelation 20 is our passage. Uh, we're going to especially dwell on verse 1 to 6 today. Please hear the word of God. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, uh, who is the devil and Satan, and bowed him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut, <clears throat> and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were headed. After that, he must be released for a little while. And I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their forehands or on their hands. They came to life and seized uh, and excuse me, and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. 
This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Of such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. They marched up over the, bo uh, the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where their beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, it was thrown into the lake of fire. Uh, I feel bad that uh, I'm going to begin with Revelation 20. If we had time, it would have been better if we began from Revelation 1. Uh, but then we only have like 50 minutes remaining. So let me not say much about uh, Revelation except to say that there are seven cycles uh, or in the book of Revelation that wide up. You know, they are, they are spiral uh, cycles. And this is the beginning of the, of the last cycle, uh, which spans from, um, from the first coming of Christ going all the way to, uh, into uh, the second coming of Christ and, and into eternity, as we saw with the lake of fire and the... Uh, and, uh, uh, eternal state. But I need to say that for us to understand the, uh, the, the, this passage and for us to interpret it properly, uh, we need to bear in mind the context of the world book. It is important to spend some time in understanding that the world book of Revelation, though we don't have the time, and so we, we will just go straight into this passage, verse 1 through 6. And uh, if you look at your Bibles, there, is, uh, there are two paragraphs, verse 1 to 3 and then 4 to 6. Now verses 1 to 3 describe the binding of Satan on earth uh, for what is described as a thousand years. And then verse 4 to 6 describes the thousand-year reign of souls with Christ in heaven. That's a language there. Uh, verse 5 is a little different. 
uh, it seems to take a parenthetical nature referring to the unbelieving dead. Okay, so verse 1 to 3. Let's read it again. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain, and he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bowed him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were added. After that, he must be released for a little while. Um, so here is a description of the biding of Satan. And we can, we can so dwell on the uh, eschatology and fail to see the clear identity of Satan in verse 2. Uh, he, is, he is called in his various names. He is called a dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan. Uh, this is an obvious attempt to uncover the identity, the full identity of the devil in his deceptive pseudonyms. The angel who comes down from heaven as a key, is holding a key and a chain, great chain for that matter. And then we are told that he bowed the devil or Satan for a thousand years and then he cast him into a place called the abyss or the bottomless pit. Um, the purpose of this biding is also clearly mentioned uh, at the end of verse 3. Uh, oh, not necessarily the end, but in the middle. Uh, the purpose is so that uh, he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand, e the thousand years were ended. After that, he might be released for a little while. Now, there are a number of things that we need to know when we are reading the book of Revelation. Uh, the book of Revelation is not written in the usual language. Just like the book of Daniel and Zechariah, uh, parts of Ezekiel, um, Revelation has what is called apocalyptic language. Uh, it was a language that was used to, uh, it was a figurative language used to communicate to the intended audience only. So you use figures of speech that are known by your readers and not known by everyone else. And you know that the book of Revelation was written to encourage Christians who are undergoing great persecution and suffering. So it was coded message, if you will, to these persecuted Christians to encourage them in their faith to remain steadfast under trial 
and in a way that their persecutors would not know what was being spoken about. So if you come to this passage, you will see that a number of uh, figures of speech are used or symbols are used uh, that, 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 that are not, you know, that have a meaning. For example, take the angel who is holding in his hand the key, it is called the key. So there is no other key like it. It is specified as the key, and this is the key to the bottomless pit. Uh, and then there is a great chain. So then a number of questions there. How can the angel have a physical key and a great chain meant to bind a spirit? How can a spirit be bowed by a chain or be locked in a pit, which for that matter is bottomless? Their base seems to only have one opening and that is locked. So it's not, perhaps he's not going to come in this direction, but he can go as far as he wants on the opposite direction. Because it's bottomless. Um, and what's the purpose of throwing Satan? Again, remember, he is a spiritual being, and to throw him in a bottomless pit and lock it. So you can see it's raising more questions. You're wondering, can our spirit be contained in a locality like that and be locked in? And what is the point of locking this bottomless pit? And then the other question is, why only a thousand years? What is so significant about a thousand years? And especially when you're dealing with God's enemy, this sounds like a very short period. Especially when we consider 2 Peter 3.18, whereby we are told that uh, with the Lord, a thousand years is as one day, and that just does demonstrate how short that period is. So it seems then that this is figurative or apocalyptic language, which is very much characteristic of the whole book of Revelation. You know, no one would argue with the fact that the book of Revelation is very apocalyptic. The language is very figurative. And so in, in, in interpreting apocalyptic language, you must not press each of, the, uh, each of the figures of speech too much. Just like when it comes to parables, we don't, we don't squeeze meaning out of every single aspect of the parable. 
So it seems then that too many Bible interpreters want to squeeze meaning from this passage too much. So the number a thousand years, I would submit, which is used here, must not be interpreted in the literal sense, especially because of what, what I've just pointed out to you from 2 Peter 3, 8, uh, which says very clearly that we must not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as as one day. Talking about, and this is in the context of eschatology, uh, that we must not uh, think that the Lord is slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness, but rather is being patient towards them in this period. That's a context that, that Peter is writing about. This period of waiting for the second coming of Christ, which the scoffers are unhappy with. And they are talking about the time going on endlessly. Uh, but, but then Peter points out that, look, this period uh, is really short in God's scheme of things. And he specifically employs that, uh, that language of a thousand years. So, Bible interpreters seem to be a bit inconsistent with uh, saying that things, some things are figurative and others are not, in a way that uh, then fathers their millennial position. But uh, if you look at the, the Bible, you would see that Number 10 does signify completeness in Scripture, like 10 commandments. And uh, since a thousand years, uh, excuse me, a thousand is, um, is 10 to the third power, we may think of the expression a thousand years as standing for a complete period, a very long period of uh, undeterminate length. Uh, because even the Lord himself said that he doesn't, no, as at the time when he was on the earth, uh, when he would return, or the end of the age, the end of this age. So, um, again, if you look at uh, verse 7 through 15, it describes the uh, Satan's little season, the final battle and the final judgment. And we may conclude that this thousand year period extends from Christ's first coming to just before his second coming. Verses 10, 14 and 15 mentions the lake of fire as a place of final punishment. This means that the abyss mentioned in verses 1 and 3 must not be the place of final judgment. But we also know that there is no middle ground, as I already pointed out in the previous lessons. Uh, there, is no, there is no period, there is no place in between. 
Um, so the word abase should rather be thought of as a figurative de description of the way in which Satan's activities will be limited and curtailed during this thousand year period. Right, let's go back to verse 1, to 3 and consider this binding of Satan. What is meant then by the binding of Satan until when God, uh, until when, uh, how is it put there? Until the thousand years were ended. Now, um, we know that until when God graciously chose to reveal himself to Abraham, most of the nations of the old Satan's uh, influence. And uh, that revelation was only in the nation of, uh, to the nation of Israel. Um, and Satan's rule continued throughout the, the period until the coming of Christ because the revelation was only directed at the, at the nation of Israel. Um, <clears throat> many nations, many Gentile nations remained in ignorance of God's revelation that brings salvation. At that time, the people of Israel were the recipients of this special revelation from God, so that they knew God's truth about themselves, about their sinfulness, about, about God, about the way to obtain forgiveness of their sins, uh, and about, the, about salvation. Other nations were deceived by Satan, as our first parents had been deceived by Satan when, when they fell into sin in the Garden of Eden. Now, when Christ came on earth, he specifically came to destroy the works of the devil and even said that he saw Satan fall like lightning. And during his ascension, he commissioned his disciples with the gospel to go and make disciples of all the nations. And while he was on earth, he was telling them, no, just go to the house of Israel and not to the nations. But then at at his ascension, the Great Commission was to the nations. So the question is, how could they possibly continue to evangelize if the devil remained with the same power to deceive the nations? It is this question that Apostle John is somewhat addressing here. Um, so during the gospel era, which has now been ushered in with the coming of Christ the first time, Satan will not be able to continue deceiving the nations the way he did in the past. For he has, he has been bowed. He has been limited. His deception has been curtailed by the power of the gospel. During this entire period, that is, the, the period we, we saw as the last days from Christ's first coming to the second coming. We who are Christ's disciples will be able to preach the gospel and make disciples of all nations. Uh, you remember that parable of the biding of the strong man. Uh, it seems 
that that's what Christ came to do. So, and that does fit in with the purpose for which he was bowed, as we will see shortly. He was bowed in order that he might not deceive the nations any longer. Well, so does this biding mean that Satan cannot do any harm? Does it mean that Satan cannot do any, any harm while he is bowed? It means that while Satan is bowed, he cannot deceive the nations in such a way as to keep them from learning about the truth of God and be saved. Later in the chapter, we are told that when the thousand years are over, Satan will be released for, for, uh, from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations of the world together and gather them together to fight against God's people and if possible, destroy the people of God. Verse 7 through 9. But he cannot do this while he is bound. In conclusion, the biding of Satan during the gospel age means that he cannot prevent the gospel from spreading to the nations and he cannot gather all the enemies of Christ together to attack the church as to obliterate the church. And then the other question we ask here is, is there any indication in the New Testament that Satan was bowed at the time of the first coming of Christ? I think this is the most important question in the world discussion. If you turn with me to Matthew 12, I already made some reference to it. Matthew 12, 28 and 29, where the Lord is saying that he is accused of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And uh, he says in verse 28, But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a, thou uh, excuse me, enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he's, he first binds the strong man? then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Again, you notice that there are two ages. It's either this age or the age to come. Um, no intervening period. But the point I wanted to show you there is that language of biding. How can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds a strong man? This is a, a statement of fact. The nations were under the sway of the evil one. And the Lord Jesus came to seek and to seek the lost. He came to destroy the works of the devil. It is worthy noting that the word used by Matthew to describe the biting of the strong man 
is the exact, the precise word used in Revelation 20 to describe the binding of Satan. This is to say that Jesus bound the devil when he triumphed over him. And we see this in the ministry of the Lord. For example, at the very beginning of his ministry, after his baptism, as soon as there is the clear commendation from heaven, uh, the Bible says that he was taken to the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And so when he refused to give in to his temptations, something that the first Adam was not able to do, then that was the beginning of the end of Satan's sway over the nations. And then as you've already seen from this passage, in casting out of demons, an evidence of the presence of the kingdom of God, as we saw in verse 28, the Lord is showing that the kingdom of God is being established and that the, effect, the influence of the devil upon the nations is being curtailed. If you turn to the next chapter, Matthew 13, verse 24 to 30, we read of the parable of the wits. Um, if you look at verse 47, where, where we have the parable of the net, for example, all those parables do show that uh, the preaching of the gospel is happening to the nations. It's not just to the Israelites. And so verse 47, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was drawn into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew its eight ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bird. So it will be at the close of the age, the angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace in the place. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Again, you can see it is this age and then the next age, which is the final state. But the point is, the gospel is being proclaimed. There is the gathering of God's people from, of every kind, from every nation. Look at Luke 10, verse 17 and 18. Luke chapter 10, verse 17. We're told of the return of the 72. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, every, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, not rejoice in these, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Um, another passage which ties in the restriction of Satan's activities with Christ's missionary outreach is John 12, 31 and 32. 12, John 12, 31 to 32 says, 
Now is the judgment of the world. Now will the rule of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. The devil is cast out. Uh, the work of Christ on the cross, we see in Colossians 2.15, sealed the fate of Satan. For here the Lord triumphed over the devil and all rulers. Colossians 2.15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And if you will, you can see Hebrews 2.14 and 15 as well. And the point I want to draw there is when we hear of the biting of Satan or the locking of the, the bottomless pit or uh, the casting out or the destruction of the devil, we must not take those terms in absolute terms. When the Lord says, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning, we don't take that to mean that Satan fell and died, do we? When we read that he was cast out, we don't take that to mean that he was cast out in such a way that uh, he was completely done. And the same is true of, uh, of Hebrews 2, 14 and 15, where we are told that Satan is destroyed. But is he really destroyed in the sense that he, can, he, he is either dead or unable to do anything at all? No, it's all figurative. So conclusion then of verses 1 to 3 of Revelation is that the biding of Satan described here in Revelation 21 to 3 means that throughout the gospel age in which we live now, the influence of Satan is curtailed. Though certainly not crushed. That the devil cannot prevent the spread of the gospel to the nations of the world is obvious. Because of the biding of Satan during this present age, the nations cannot conquer the church. But the church is conquering the nations. Amen? The church is conquering the nation, the nations. Satan is bowed. Satan is cast out. Satan has been put into the bottomless pit and, and there is this great chain. And the purpose of all that is stated explicitly there as so that you might not deceive the nations any longer until the 1,000 years were ended. Any, any questions so far? We need to understand that, that section before we move on. So you can see then that this biting of Satan for a thousand years is to reduce or curtail or to limit his activity on earth insofar as the deception of the nation is concerned. So this is clearly happening on earth below. Any, any question before we move on to verse 4 through 6? Yes, John? 
thank you so much, Pasi, for for that. And uh, we say amen uh, that Satan indeed is bound. Uh, please uh, help me understand the the last statement of verse three, which says, "After that, he must be released for a little while." Yeah. So um, the releasing is happening. Um, after that, a thousand years, um, and I would say that we can compare that period of the release for a little while with Second uh, Thessalonians two. So, if you will kindly turn there, Second Thessalonians two. Um, this is the man of lawless, lawlessness. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together uh, to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any, in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion come, comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. The son of destruction who oppresses, excuse me, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object, or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Um, let's read on. Do you remember, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? I think it's a statement like that that makes it very difficult because, you know, we don't know what Paul told, told the Thessalonians. We were not there. So when he writes like that, you wonder, what did you tell them? We were not there. We don't know what you said. We don't remember at all because we never got that. Anyway. Let's read on verse 6. And you know what is, what is restraining him. No, we don't know, Paul. Anyway, the Bible says you know. And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So, verse 1 to 3 of Revelation can be compared to verse 6 and 7. Um, so, there is a training aspect of Satan and his activity uh, is being described there. Again, you see, Whereas in, in Revelation, the terms are very, very absolute. Uh, here it is called restraining. 
And then if you compare Revelation 3, uh, and then along with verse 7 to 9, uh, so if you may keep your finger there in Revelation, excuse me, in both 2 Thessalonians 2 and Revelation 20, uh, perhaps you could compare them quickly. So verse 3 of Revelation that talks about him, uh, the Satan being thrown into the pit and shut and sealed of him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. And then you look at verse 7, and when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of a sea. And all the way to verse 9, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and, and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. You can see, it's, it's like the Lord lets Satan, you know, bring together all his allies. And, and then as they get ready to attack, the Lord, the Lord detonates something or you know what 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 paul describes as the breath of his mouth and brings to nothing by the appearance of his coming all that activity of satan all at once so that satan is unable to do anything more if you look at uh, revelation 9 and 10 in comparison to 8 and 12 of second thessalonians you see this um and the devil who, was, who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Um, and then look at uh, Second Thessalonians 2, 8 and 12. Um, and then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will, Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Verse 12. In order that all may be condemned who do not believe the truth but at pleasure and unrighteousness. Uh, there is that destruction that happens. So there is this brief period before Christ's second return, which is also called tribulation of intense Satan's activity where the Antichrist will be revealed and then there will be a post to say and then all of a sudden the Lord will appear and all that will be brought to nothing. Okay, so, so that's what's being described there at the end of verse 3, John. Okay. Any other question? Although we have quite a lot of ground to cover. Let's move on then to verse 4 to 6. Uh, again, perhaps you could read it. Then I saw thrones and uh, thrones. So you notice that in verse 1 he says, then I saw. And then in verse 4 he says, then I saw. And then verse 11 he says, then I saw. So he says, then I saw thrones and, seat, and seated on the, excuse me, and seated on them while those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded 
for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who would not worship the beast or its image and have not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Uh, who did John see first? It is those, it was thrones, and then those seated on the thrones are identified as those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Um, so you can see there then that that whole idea of thrones, we don't see much of thrones on earth, do we? How many of you have seen thrones? It's not a very common thing, is it? Um, it's a kings who have thrones on earth. But then we see that these thrones, well, even where there is a throne on earth, you don't have so many thrones all at once. You only have one. But in heaven, we read of thrones in plural. For example, in, in Revelation 3.21, we read of thrones. In Revelation 4.2, in Revelation 5.6 and 12.5. And then later on in Revelation 21 verse 3, we are told of the throne of God coming from heaven to earth. And then who are the occupants of the thrones? Those are the beheaded souls. They did not worship the beasts. 22 verse 1 as well. Uh, they not worship the beasts. We're told that they are the souls of those who had been beheaded. They not worship the beasts or its image, and they had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. These are the ones who had come to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And then what is the nature of their reign? They are reigning with Christ for a thousand years. Again, remember, to die is to be with Christ. So both verses 1 to 3 and verses 4 to 6 speak of a thousand year period, which are running concurrently, one in heaven, uh, the other one on earth. We saw verse 1 to 3 is on earth, and now verse 4 to 6 is in heaven. We may safely assume that the verses 1 to 3 and verses 4 to 6 concern the same thousand-year period. That period, as we saw, spans the entire New Testament pe uh, biblical uh, period uh, for those who, you know, uh, who are in Christ all the way to the second coming of Christ. Um, 
So the first question then again, we want to ask a few questions to get to understand this uh, passage. Again, where are these thrones? John saw those who had been given authority to judge sitting on thrones and were given authority to exercise their, uh, this reign or this rule. And this is another way of saying that they were with Christ, the King of Kings. Because you see, the word throne is used 47 times in Revelation. And that all but three of these thrones appear to be in heaven. Uh, Revelation 2.13 and 13.2 and 16.10 are the only exceptions. So we could possibly have two things. Um, John saw those who, to whom the authority to judge was committed. And then John saw the souls of those who had been beheaded. The reigning with Christ shows that believers are together with Christ with his authority in a manner different from the former way that they had ever, ever lived. Secondly, the sight of souls beheaded show that things that have taken place are decisive. They are decisively eternal uh, and cannot be reversed. If you're beheaded, your head cannot be returned. This, only, this is only true in heaven where all things will no longer be time-bound, but also will be past the intermediate uh, state. Now, this strengthens the, conclu the conclusion that the location of John's vision, vision has now shifted to heaven. Okay. So the answer then is, where are these drones? And the answer is, in heaven. And then let's look at the, the, the people who are seated on the thrones. He tells us that he saw souls of those who had been beheaded. That word souls has been used in the Bible to refer to, to describe people who are still living on earth with unglorified bodies as in Acts 2.41. You know, we are, we are told that so many were added, 3,000 souls were added in Acts 2.41. But in Revelation 20 verse 4, this meaning will not work because it's also used in many other places to refer to uh, the spirits of just men made perfect. Um, now again, these souls that were, that had been beheaded are in a, in a state that is continuous. It's a perfect continuous state because that Greek word there is, it uses that kind of a tense, heorists. Um, so the people of those, uh, it's the hence, it's the souls of the people who had been beheaded, or men of those who had been beheaded, and remain in that state. They have not been resurrected. You will not describe resurrected people as beheaded, uh, having having been having had the the, the souls reunited 
with their bodies, you know, after resurrection, you cannot describe them as still being in that state of being beheaded. Um, Revelation 6.9 is a parallel passage, and perhaps you could read that. Revelation 6.9 says, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. Okay, we must not forget that John saw all this in a vision, something that was meant to be to bring comfort to the relatives and friends of these martyrs. John sees their souls as now sitting on thrones in heaven, taking part in the work of judging and reigning with Christ. This is comforting to those who are living and still undergoing persecution. These people are not worship the beast or its image. They are not been. Uh, they are not received this mark on their foreheads or their hands. And clearly, these are these are the elect of God. They are uh, with Christ. And while the NIV presents these words as if they were a further description of the matters referred to in the preceding clause, the other possibility there is another possibility, and the possibility conveyed here. By, by the translation found in the American Standard Version, is, and such as worship not the beast, neither his image, and receive not the mark upon their forehead and upon their hand. What's the point? I think the point is made early in the book of Revelation about unbelieving opponents of Christ and his kingdom who were described as those who worship the beast or ace image, and those who receive the mark of the beast on their foreheads or on their hands. In Revelation 13, verse 8, uh, verse 15 and 17, and then Revelation 14, verse 9 through 11. Equally, believers who remain faithful to the Lord are described as those who are victorious over the beasts, Revelation 15, verse 2, and those who did not worship the beast or his image in Revelation 13, verse 5. So John then is describing a wider group than just the martyrs because John means all Christians who had remained true to Christ and unresisted all anti-Christian powers and demands, all Christians, in other words, who had remained faithful to the end, who endured to the end, who had been given eternal life and a place with Christ in the paradise of God. Yes, those who had died a martyr's death would constitute a part of this group, but not the whole group. Although John does not here specifically speak of souls, we may safely assume that he is still talking about souls of believers who had died. And now they are with Christ so that they are alive in a way that uh, you know, those who did not die in Christ would have been alive. Now, the most controversial words in the passage, let's deal with those. 
Um, now, next week, we are going to sample four, the four main millennial views. And that is uh, a millennialist, post-millennialist, classical premillennialist, and dispensational or pre-tribulational dispensation um, uh, premillennialist. Now, premillennial interpreters, whether dispensational or non-dispensational, take and seek to understand these words as referring to a literal resurrection. That is the words that they came to life. Uh, they they resurrected from the dead, and therefore fight this passage proof for a thousand-year reign of Christ on earth after his second coming. But it must be granted that the Greek word rendered came to life, exon, can refer to a physical resurrection as it is used in Matthew 9, 18, and Romans 14, verse 9, as well as uh, 2 Corinthians 13, 4, and Revelation 2, 8. But the question is, however, whether this is what the word means here, because um, it's also used in many other passages to mean something different. Uh, clearly, John is speaking of a kind of resurrection, uh, and it's 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 uh, different. Anyway, if you look at verse 5, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. That's what I'm talking about. So, these words, this is the first resurrection, which obviously refer to the living and the reigning with Christ of verse 4. Um... I take that to mean that they are, they came to life or they came to the first resurrection as meaning to be with Christ, to reigning with Christ. And not second resurrection meaning the rapture, which is secret. And uh, um, and midway, so to speak, because it doesn't go all the way. So, what is this first resurrection then? It's not a reference to a physical resurrection, because you realize that these are described as those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus. Jesus, there in verse four, who came to life. And what does that mean? There is a further explanation on the text. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So verse 11, uh, verses 11 to 13 uh, describe the raising of the body from the dead as something distinct from what is described here. Unless one is willing to bring in two bodily resurrections, one of the believers at the beginning of the millennium and another one of unbelievers after the millennium, then this whole idea of first resurrection will bring a problem. So 
one will be able to understand the exon or that word came to life of verse 4 as referring to coming to be with Christ. Since the scriptures elsewhere clearly teach only one bodily resurrection, which will include both believers and unbelievers. For example, John 5, 28 and 29, Acts 24, verse 15. Uh, what is described in the last clause of verse 4 has to be something other than the physical or bodily resurrection, which is yet to come. And what is meant then by the words, they came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Now the clue has already been given, verse 4a, where John saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. The rest of the verse makes plain that those sitting on the thrones were the souls of people who had died, martyrs for the faith and other Christians who had remained true to Christ to the very end of their lives. This is a group which John saw as living and reigning with Christ. Though these believers have died, John sees them alive, not in the bodily sense, but in the sense that they are enjoying abundant life in heaven, in fellowship with Christ. This life is a life of great happiness, uh, as Paul was torn between living and serving Christ here on earth or dying and being with Christ in, in Philippians 1.23. It's a life in which they sit on thrones, sharing the reign of Christ over all things, sharing in the judging activity. This heavenly reigning is a, is a fulfillment of a promise recorded earlier in the book, to him who overcomes. In chapter 3, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I overcome, overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. In Revelation 3.21. And this is absolutely vital to even understanding the fullness that Christ gives to those who are in him. So here then is a sharing of royal glory with Christ. These souls celebrate the lambs. Uh, the Lamb's victory, and that's their own victory. With Him, they reign. All their powers are answered. I mean, all their prayers are answered. All their wishes are constantly fulfilled, as William Edrickson says in his book, More Than Conquerors. So we must always bear in mind that at this time, the church was oppressed, frequently persecuted, and this would be of great comfort to those reading this. So then I would conclude that there is no indication in these texts, in these verses, that John is describe, describing an earthly millennial reign. The scene is set in heaven. Nothing is said in verse 4 to 6 about earth. And so it would be wrong to impose it, uh, to, to import that foreign language to that text. <clears throat> um, yeah, so let's move on then to the, to the next question. What is meant by the second death of us five? And what is the first resurrection? And, what is, and who are the blessed in verse six? 
but I'm afraid we've run out of time, so I, I, could, I could pick it up from there before we sample the four millennial views next week. Any, any question before we close? All we're doing is trying to understand that text. Yes, there is a question online. Yes, go ahead. Um, there's a question from Mark Mujivane. Uh -huh. um, he says, thanks, Pastor Murungi, for your labors. I have one question. So the devil is released after a thousand years to deceive the nations, then thrown into the lake of fire where the false prophet and beast were. So that is the first question. Um, let me include the second as well. Um, he asks, so the beast, who is the Antichrist, was already in the lake of fire where the devil is released to deceive the nations, which means the release cannot refer to the Antichrist. Yes, the answer is yes. Though what I wanted us to do is uh, finish the world text, and then as we sample various views, would see some of those aspects. Because I also need to admit that there is no millennial view that doesn't have both merits and demerits in the understanding of this text. Okay? So, yes, I'll take up those questions next week, Mark. Uh, just be patient for now. I could have simply said the answer to the second question is yes, but then that would not be very helpful. Uh, yes, Brother Doc. Thank you, Brother, for this uh, Luke 23, chapter 28, also supports the view of a thousand years. Uh, no. uh, Luke 23. 23, 28. Mm -hmm. It's 28 all the way to 31. When um, Jesus responds to the women who are lamenting, who are mourning and lamenting for him. Uh, I'll read it. 28. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they, they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things, when the wood is green, what will happen? When it is dry, mm. so does this support the thousand years uh, where? No, that I think that that is describing mostly the the, the tribulation period. Uh, yes, John. Uh, thank you, Pastor. My question is: in this a thousand. Yes, when Satan is, is bound, uh, will men still uh, be sinning? Or is it a thousand years where they will not be sinning this earth? 
I don't think I've understood. I didn't hear every word you said, uh, so I didn't quite understand your question. My question is, yes, in these thousand years when Christ is reigning, when Christ is reigning, yeah, uh -huh. and Satan is bound, yes, and he doesn't deceive, uh, he's not deceiving the nations anymore. Okay, will men still be sinning? Will men still be sinning? Yeah, That's yes, the yes, they will be sinning, those on earth, but those who are in heaven, they will not be sinning. Because the, the, the text does describe both what's happening on earth and what's happening in heaven. Let's draw to a, to a close. I know you have more questions and uh, some of the questions cannot be answered satisfactorily because we've only dealt with an aspect of it. Next week, we'll, we'll try to tie up everything together and deal with some of those uh, uh, questions. All right. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Uh, we thank you, our Father and our God, for this time we've heard with, with your word. Uh, please help us to understand it, to continue to think about it, to, um, to know what you would have us know in light of our blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Um, bless us today as we gather for worship, as we spend to serve the saints, as we wash the feet of one another, <clears throat> and even later on as we hear the testimonies of those whom you have saved, we pray that uh, we would know the riches of your blessings. So do hear us and help us, for we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. Thank you so much.